Hi, I'm Valerie Dalton, founder and artistic director of the Live Literature Company. Welcome to the second story of our summer podcast series one, which focuses on war. Today, we are marking the 75th anniversary of VJ Day, August 15th, 1945. My father died on August 14th, 1996, almost exactly 50 years later. I am, of course, extremely fortunate he was one of those who returned home from this horrific war. He wrote a book on his experiences entitled The Fighting Cock, being the history of the 23rd Indian Division, 1942 to 1947, by Lieutenant Colonel A.J.F. Dalton, O.B.E. His dedication reads, To all those who wore the fighting cock, officers and men, British and Indian, living and dead. For me, this is also a voyage round my father, like many, after returning home from the war, Dad never spoke to us about that war. He also never asked me to read his book. So it was only after he died I did so, and then came to understand so much about him. The hardship and suffering these men endured is almost beyond belief. The extracts I'm going to read to you begin at Chapter 5, The 1942 Monsoon. The weather was dirty during that 1942 monsoon. The rain raced out of the sky for days on end. The mountain tops were shrouded in a continuous mist, and the heavens were blotted out except when jagged streaks of lightning tore the clouds apart. It was as though nature was determined to show that she resented our intrusion into her kingdom. For the first thirteen days of July it rained without ceasing, and during a violent August thunderstorm communications were dislocated when the signal office was struck by lightning. Those who have experienced the fury of the monsoon know that it is beyond the mind's devising to keep dry unless you have a stout roof overhead and strong walls around you. In Assam, officers and men alike were wet all day and all night. Out at Shinam, even bamboo bashers were little protection against the elements as the wind thrust through the countless crevices and swirled round inside the huts, driving in the inescapable dampness to moisten the lives of those who could secure the pleasure of dryness only when they were relieved at their forward posts and sent down to Palel for a few days. The shortage of essential equipment increased the strain of a life exposed to the elements. There were serious deficiencies of blankets, greatcoats and waterproofs, and perhaps worst of all, 
nearly everyone had only one pair of boots. It is little wonder that under these conditions the health of the division began seriously to suffer. Owing to the ravages, the climate and of malaria, many units were by early September reduced to half their normal strength and some were much lower than this. One battalion commander has expressed the opinion that some units never fully recovered from the wastage during this first monsoon, when the medical resources were overwhelmed by an incidence of disease such as none had foreseen. With the road back to India washed away, and air evacuation far away in the future, there was nothing for it but to hold casualties forward. Our medical units were small and few, so that at times battalions were holding as many as 200 cases in their own lines. Among the diseases to be treated, there was one which, if not dangerous, ranked very high for the utter discomfort it caused. Sufferers from foot trot will not readily forget the agony of each step and the sensation of complete helplessness when the skin cracked between the toes and the fungus began to spread until, in the worst cases, there occurred a process of internal combustion which brought up filthy blisters on the feet as though they had been plunged into boiling water. Mud, wet, cold and disease, these the inescapable companions of our everyday life, worked insidiously upon the mind and spirit. There was no release from, no easement of, the unending discomfort which sapped at morale. None could at times escape the feeling that life was not worth the living when, after a day's work in the rain and mud, which made each step of physical effort Men were turned, drenched to the skin, to a sparsely furnished hut, if duty did not demand that they continue to face the elements during the night. Even under cover the nights brought little relief to those who lay in wet clothes under insufficient blankets, trying to forget the cold, which made a mockery of the desire for sleep. Gradually the mind became numbed and drove on the body to function as an automaton and men went stolidly about their business because they were disciplined soldiers for whom there was no quitting. Extract 2. The Tidim Road My father held the Gurkhas, whom he fought alongside, with the highest respect all his life. One of the collections at his funeral was for them. I have recently travelled to the village in the Himalayas where many of the Gurkhas originate from and seen at first hand the hardship of the life in these magnificent mountains. The Tidim Road Battle Meanwhile, after a night of jitter raids, Lieutenant Colonel Marandin and his force were being desperately hard-pressed by an enemy resolved on their destruction. 
About nine hundred hours on the 17th, some infantry appeared moving southwards. For a few seconds there was hesitation, and in those few seconds, while men paused and wondered whether help had not come, the Japs hurled themselves on B Company. Surprise had been achieved, and the initial impetus of the attack carried the Jap part of the way into the thinly held defences for all the fury of the Gurkha resistance in a hand-to-hand struggle where the clash of steel on steel could be heard amid the crack of rifle fire and the cries and shouts of the battle. The position was indeed precarious. The Japs were lodged in some dead ground, and unless they could be speedily ejected, they would be able at their leisure to prepare for an assault which would finally overwhelm the defence. Despite mounting losses, B Company, with their commander again outstanding, thrust back at once into a counter-attack and turned the enemy out of the vital dead ground. But the Jap had the range with his heavy mortars. Unable to endure further casualties, the Gurkhas had to relinquish their hold. B Company had no longer the strength for a further effort without assistance from A Company, and to use the latter meant that the perimeter defence would be weaker than ever. But the risk had to be taken, for the survival of what remained of the force depended on recapturing the dead ground. The action in the second counter-attack, which was delivered by an A Company platoon, with the remnants of the B Company platoon, was, if possible, fiercer than any of the preceding engagements. Amid the confusion of this fight to the death, the issue was not immediately apparent. Caught up in a ferocious struggle for survival, men fought to kill. In the end it was the Japs who quit, but the Gurkhas had sustained twenty more casualties which they could not afford. The only way to hold the restored perimeter was by bringing over another platoon from A Company. As the day wore on, a day when time seemed to stand still, the CO realised that no help would come from the north, and at 1300 hours he decided he must withdraw when darkness fell. His force was exhausted and so depleted in numbers that he could not spare the men to collect the supplies which would drop wide of his position in the late afternoon. In all, 21 had been killed, three were missing, and 75 wounded. The survivors, amounting to barely a company, had not slept for three nights, and their food and water was gone. Forty stretcher cases had lain unattended in the middle of the battle for three days, and when the food was exhausted, they could not have such meagre comfort as their daily ration of two cups of tea and one biscuit had provided. There was ammunition enough to repel one more attack. Extract 3, Chapter 17 Describes the conditions the men marched in. It was during the events that formed the subject of this chapter that a large mule column was required to move the Patialas, less one company, from Hambone to Halfway Hill. 
Shortly after daybreak, when patrols had reported the tracks clear, the convoy of three hundred mules and two hundred men moved off from Nuntak. Climbing continuously, they covered eleven miles in the first four hours before they stopped for a long halt. In pouring rain, the drivers squatted down on their haunches to eat their haversack ration, the reins in one hand and a chapati in the other. By thirteen hundred hours, they were at the foot of Hambone, but it was some time before they reached the Patiala positions at the top, as the last half-mile of the track was feet deep in thick, glutinous mud. The march back began at seventeen hundred hours, and the first Patiala company, with its complement of mules, reached the rendezvous where the battalion was to collect in an hour and a half. There they and the other companies waited four hours until they were joined by one last platoon which had been in contact with the Jap. The rain poured down. The wind bit through the wet clothing. When the time came to replace the loads, the men and animals were numb with cold, and chilled fingers, fumbling with the equipment in the dark, found difficulty in fastening the 160-pound burdens securely. Some time, after twenty-two thirty hours, the whole column moved on with four miles left to cover. The march took four hours on a night so dark that one man could not see his fellow in front and only kept touch with him by holding on to his bayonet scabbard. This was no march but a shuffle through the night where men and mules slithered over and over along the mud. By the time Halfway Hill was reached, ten mules had disappeared over the edge of the track and had dropped an unknown number of feet into the jungle where they had to be left until search parties went out in the morning to find the bits of rag that marked the point of the fall. On arrival at Halfway Hill, not many hours of the night remained before dawn. The mules were unloaded and tethered, and the patialas went about their business, and the mule company, left alone once more, formed a perimeter round the animals. Some of the men were required for guards, the more fortunate lay down in the mud to sleep if they could. Extract 4, Chapter 18 Operation Krakon For many in Europe, the war was coming to an end. For those in the East, many of them were posted on to Malaya. Here the story of the fighting cock on the Assam-Burma frontier comes to an end. We had lived in the jungle for two years and three months, and for all but a bare five months of that time we were front-line troops. Eighteen months had gone by since half of the division had been on leave of any sort. Many had been at the front for three monsoons, and all were exhausted and tired from the strain of the fighting since March. There is nothing very spectacular about our story. No feat of arms that appeals immediately to the imagination, like the fly-in of the chindits, 
or the second division clash at Kohima, but is nonetheless a fine record of long service in the cause of freedom. While it was necessary, we waited patiently and won our struggle with isolation and the jungle, and when the battle came, we fought tooth and nail. Tough and unyielding in defence, resolute and spirited in attack, masters of the approach through the jungle, we had never been worsted by the Jap wherever we had been called upon to fight him. Discipline, courage, endurance, skill in the use of arms, these are prime virtues on the field of battle, and these we had shown we possessed. Extract 5, Chapter 20 As I mentioned, many men were posted on to Malaya, including my father. Malayan Interlude We all fell in love with Malaya during this fortnight in September. The quick dispersal of the division produced the desired peacefulness, and only two disturbances were reported, one north of Seraban, where 6-8 Punjab and Force 136 had a skirmish with bandits, and the other at Tampin, where there was a clash between Chinese and Malays for which members of the Japanese secret police were significantly said to be responsible. Otherwise there was a calm in a land where the countryside smiled and the people smiled. It was all splendidly refreshing after India. Green hills rose and fell in a nice disorder wherever the eye turned. Streams bubbled in the valleys where the fruits of the earth flourished abundantly in the fields. A midday, the sun, though mildly soporific, was not excessively overpowering. In the early morning there was a delicious and delicate nip in the air. It was a land that satisfied eye and body, and a land that had known prosperity. Up and down its length ran excellent roads that were a wonder to those accustomed to the infuriating trunk road from Bombay to Nazik, where stretches of concrete had been laid on alternate sides of the road, and a car bumped from concrete to earth, or switched from side to side, and hoped there would be no opposition. There was nothing so crazy about the roads of Malaya, while in the towns, where the streets were broad, the many schools were a welcome sign of progress, and there was not that air of awful poverty that characterises India. Malayan Interlude Continued the general summoned an early morning conference and began by announcing quietly that the division was bound for Java forthwith. There were vague rumours of trouble in the island, but none foresaw, as they listened to the general in peaceful Malaya, that some of the ugliest days in our story were to come. Extract 6 Clouds over Java. Batavia, at the end of September 1945, was a city of flags and crowds, but there were no triumphal arches gay with bunting, 
and no wild outbursts of enthusiasm to greet the arrival of the British. The flags were all of one colour, horizontal red and white stripes, the emblems of the newly born Indonesian Republic. And the crowds watched impassively, a sea of faces devoid of any visible emotion. To the new arrival from Malaya, it was as though he had come out of the sunlight into the darkness that broods over the earth before a monsoon storm bursts. Those of us who came to Java came to a troubled land, to a powder magazine where one act of carelessness or one false step would be fatal. There was nothing pleasant about the task we had been set, and we came simply to fulfil a duty that fell to the SEAC in accordance with the Potsdam Agreement. It had there been decreed that the enemy armed forces could only surrender to one of the four signatory powers. In the course of time, it was inevitable that British troops should come to Java to disarm the 55,000 Japanese who were supposed to be maintaining law and order in the meanwhile. It chanced that we, of the fighting cock, were the first who could be spared for the task. As has been said, our first task in Java was to disarm the Japanese, but this was not the end of our mission. We were next bidden to rescue and succour prisoners of war and internees, and honours devolved the responsibility for maintaining law and order while carrying out our two main commitments. From the terrible insurrection that developed in Java, I've chosen to share with you what my father wrote about the women in the camps. A visit to any of these camps seared the heart. They were the homes of a hundred thousand Dutch and Eurasian women and children who had already endured three and a half years of lonely captivity apart from their menfolk. By the end of November 1943, even boys of 16 had been swept away to act as human beasts of burden and there was no able-bodied man left to ease the strain of unending manual labour. If a cesspit had to be dug, the internees did the work, watched over by Japanese soldiers, who were ready to strike anyone who faltered. On one occasion, women and girls worked from five in the evening until two the following morning, erecting a fence as a punishment for bringing illegal food into the camp, and the offence had been a trap set by a vicious commandant. These Japanese had shown no mercy as conquerors. Every morning and evening they displayed their superiority over the Western races by forcing all to bow before them. No one was safe from their sadistic brutality. A woman was knocked down for some trivial offence, and when she rose was told to walk quicker. Unable to respond, she was sent reeling to the ground, her skull and jaw broken. 
So these hapless women and children lived, if the word can be rightly used, for an existence such as this, where the staple food was a modicum of rice, and fifty-five centimetres was the allotted sleeping space on bare boards. One who had endured wrote at the end, We heard that we were free on August the 23rd, but it took us much longer to realise that we were free, because things did not alter very much, and we did not know any more what it meant to be free, to think and say what you liked, and to go where you liked. But after I have been out of the camp for almost two months, now I do know what it means, and you do not need to ask me if I enjoy it. It's too good to be true. Yes, too good to be true. But what of the thousands less fortunate in the central Java camps? They had no song in their hearts. They still had to endure the pungent odour pervading those camps. They still lived hugger-mugger on top of each other. The children still scampered about shoeless and half-wild in the mud. There was still only rare news of the outside world, and that all too often full of sadness. Every day some woman would be convulsed with sobs as the news of her husband's death in Siam came through. Peace had brought medical supplies which helped to reduce the death rate from thirty to three a day, but little else except more misery. The need was for comfort, happiness, and more materially, for proper feeding, and none of these could be provided. The Indonesians banned the sale of fresh food. They arrested the British and Dutch officers of the relief organisations. The awful truth was the fear of the Japanese had been superseded by a new and greater fear, the dread of a wholesale massacre. Peace had come, but it had proved a shadow for those imprisoned in the camps, where the fortitude and understanding of one or two women miraculously prevented thousands from sinking into hopeless despair. It was a crime against humanity that such danger and misery could exist two months after the Japanese surrender. But protests to Sukarno were of no avail. His unruly followers were out of control, and we could only hope there would be no disaster before the rest of the division arrived. The Lieutenant Colonel went on his errands of mercy to bring in internees from outlying houses. The town was in the hands of riotous bands out for pillage and destruction, and he knew that one false step would mean death. His tact and patience, his physical endurance, courage and judgment led to the saving the lives of many women whose fortitude equalled his own. The stoicism, the calm bearing and the bravery of these Dutch and Eurasian women had to be something at which to marvel. When the rising began, one lady led a party of twenty children 
to the nearest British post. At first she moved safely through back gardens until she reached a point where she was forced to run the gauntlet down a bullet-swept street. She shepherded her flock together, encouraged them, and set off at their head in a race with death which all escaped but one. At the post she offered her services as nurse, an offer gladly accepted, for there were several seriously wounded and none to tend them. Throughout the fighting she went on with her self-imposed task, never flinching at sights that made the battle-hardened pause. This brave lady was one of very many. Another moment had arrived when they must go out through the streets again to the docks, where British warships were waiting to take them away from troubled Java to Singapore. The estimate was that there would be something over a thousand to be carried. In fact, near eight thousand were rescued. Extract 7, Chapter 23 The Flames in Java Spread As October turned into November, the British military commanders, caught up against their will in a nationalist rising which they had no means to quell, watched almost helplessly as a tide of violence swept westwards. They had nothing on which they could rely, apart from their own courage and that of their men, who were nowhere numerous enough to hold out against a massed insurrection, except possibly in Batavia. The Gurkhas were fighting with their customary toughness. One Gurkha, cooped up with his section inside a building ill-designed for defence, drove off repeated attacks for thirteen hours. Once a shrieking, maddened horde was ten yards away, but the Gurkha appeared at an open window in full view of the attackers, who fell back in the face of repeated bursts from an automatic. Another Gurkha held his post for thirty-six hours before relief came. Ultimately, the devastation of the island and the legacy of hatred came back to the Japanese, and as, during our stay in Java, we learnt more of their schemings, the deliberate intent of their activities became the more apparent. They had gone much further than fostering the Indonesian rising. In the true Nazi style, they had impregnated the youth of the country, both male and female, with their pernicious doctrines, and this schooling led on to a period of military training and service in the Home Guard. Later, when the days of the co-prosperity sphere were clearly numbered, the glorious thought of independence was quietly planted in receptive minds, to be followed in the hour of defeat by the incitement to insurrection. Extract 8, Chapter 24 The Turn of the Year, 1945-1946 General Hawthorne spoke for everyone when he wrote in his Christmas message. This time last year, 
How many of us thought we should be spending Christmas 1945 in Java? We have travelled far and fast in the last 12 months through Burma, Malaya, and now we are in this troubled land where strife and bloodshed are the order of the day. This is the division's fourth Christmas, and in many ways it will be the saddest when we think of all the good comrades who came to Java with us, thinking the war was over, and now are dead or wounded. Sad too, we cannot help but feel when all around us are thousands of Dutch men, women and children, our gallant friends and allies in the war, now in the common cause, bereft of all they once possessed. Extract 9, Chapter 25, Exodus Exodus was in full swing, and the last British troops were due to leave Java by November the 30th, 1946. We left behind 407 killed in action and 162 who were missing. These, with 808 wounded, made a total of 1,377 casualties and are a measure of our effort. We came to Java as soldiers. As soldiers we went away, and we cherished the thought that in performing our duty with steadfast courage and disciplined restraint, we had played our part in averting what was so nearly a great human tragedy and had, perhaps, helped a little to bring peace to a troubled land. The Dutch commander answered General Hawthorne's Christmas message in this way. My dear General, the officers and men under my command are deeply touched by your Christmas message to your officers and men. We have never felt so strongly how hard fate really was when it sent your division to Java, once the most peaceful island in the world. We share your sadness when thinking of your dead and wounded, fallen after VJ Day, when the war should have been over. We have heard of deeds of gallantry and self-sacrifice done by your troops in order to save our men, women and children from death and starvation. Deeds that we believe have never been surpassed in any other theatre of war. We are extremely grateful for the words of deep sympathy with our men, women and children who are suffering from this aftermath of the war and for your effort to make them as happy as you can. On behalf of all officers and men under my command, I wish you and all officers of the 23rd Indian Division a happy Christmas and the best of luck through the coming year. Yours very sincerely, W. Schilling Thank you for listening to our podcast. I'd really appreciate it if you would send us a review. I just want to conclude with a few words. From listening to recent Army Museum events, I know the Air Force and Navy were equally important in winning this war. But as my father was serving in the Army, this is his focus. 
The Army Museum have also talked about the men from Africa and from all over the world who served. One of these African men, Mr Ogundipi, visited us a few years after the war ended to our home in Uppingham, Rutland. I must have been two or three years old. This, for me, is another example of my father's respect for all who served with him. Many, many decades later, a Japanese delegation visited London and contacted Daddy at our family home in Devon, asking to meet him. It must have been a profoundly difficult decision to agree to do so. My mother and I watched him leave our home that day for this meeting in London, as if he was that soldier again. Who can tell what was in his mind? Many have never forgiven the Japanese, and understandably so. But I understand now. My father's time in the army influenced how he was for the whole of the rest of his life. I'd like to close with Binion's words, which we say every year on Remembrance Day. At the going down of the sun, and in the morning, we will remember them.